Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 3rd, 2019, and this is episode 2464 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a really great one for you. I'm very excited about today's guest. Uh, today's guest is Rob Greenfield. I first uh, found this guy years ago, a couple of years ago. He, he's riding across the country on a bamboo bicycle. Uh, in fact, back and forth like three times. Um, he's done all kinds of amazing projects and, and taken things kind of to the extreme. And the one he's doing right now is, well, it's extreme. Um, he simplified his life down to 111 possessions, would all fit onto the back of his bike, And he's currently now living in Orlando, Florida, in a tiny house. I know a lot of people are doing that. He built his with near zero waste, with 99% repurposed materials for under $1,500. And his current project is to live in that house and grow and forage 100% of the food that he eats for an entire year. Now, I think a lot of people talk about things like that and don't really mean 100%. So I want to be clear. When this man salts his food, it comes out of a jar, and the salt in that jar came from the fact that he went and got ocean water and dehydrated it and, and got the salt out. He's not even able to use store-bought salt, okay, or store-bought pepper or store-bought anything. 100%, he must either grow himself or forage from the wild, and he has to do this for a year. He started this on 11-11-18, and so that means he'll end on 11-11-19. So he's a little more than halfway through this. Um, at this point, you can look at it and say, this guy's going to make it. He's going to do it. Um, there have been challenges. We'll talk about that today. I'm sure he's learned a lot. Um, a, a lot of us aspire to produce 50%. Of what we eat. We're going to talk to Rob about this. I imagine that, that his goal for the average person isn't even that much. Rob is the kind of guy that does the extreme uh, to be a hero, and I don't mean intentionally. It, it's my definition of hero here, not his. I don't want to, anybody to think I'm speaking for him. Rob is the kind of guy that becomes a hero, in my definition of a hero. To me, a hero you got two kinds. People that save somebody's life at their own personal risk, that's a hero. And then people that are able to do things in such a way that impact others to the point where they'll take action, that's another type of hero. The, the, the basic way I've described it before is when you look at someone and say, if they can, I can too. Uh, that's why, to me, Jeff Lawton's always been a mentor and a hero because it was his greening the desert that made me take what I do with growing and producing my own food to another level. When I saw a man growing figs in the salted earth uh, near the Dead Sea, below sea level in the middle of a desert, I was like, well, dude, quit bitching about how hot it is in Texas and, and clay soils and go out there and make it better. And, and that's what I think Rob does. When you look at somebody that's able to and, and live a pretty good life, there's struggles in it. It's not for everybody. I'm sure he'll say that. But when you look at someone 
doing what he's doing, it kind of removes your excuse, whatever it is. Absolutely whatever it is. And I really look forward to uh, to having Rob on today. He's also the host of Free Ride on the Discovery Channel. He's the author of a book called Dude Making a Difference. He's spoken at over 130 events in 13 countries. And he is a dude making a difference. He donates 100% of his media income to grassroots nonprofits and is committed to living his life simply and responsibly. So we'll have him on in just a minute. Before we do that, let's bring on our two sponsors of the day for you today. Remind you about them. Number one today, Harvest Eating. I'd love to get Chef Keith down to Rob's place and let Chef Keith work with what Rob has in his backyard because Rob's doing some amazing stuff. Might have to slap the chef's hands a few times, keep from digging into his uh, prepared mixes and stuff like that with his prepared spice mixes and stuff or or wanting to grab some oil or something, but... uh, It'd be an interesting thing. Chef Keith can definitely teach you how to cook seasonally and locally. Ended up being a perfect sponsor for today's show because of that, so I thought I'd point it out. You can learn more about Chef Keith at HarvestEating.com. Next up today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Now, here's two things about This is cool. This just happened. I did not select these sponsors. Two things that I noticed in Rob uh, Greenfield's video. One... Uh, was the Ranger Tube line stove that I recommend. He has an outdoor little little two-burner range. It's the exact stove that I've recommended to you. The other thing he has sitting right on his little outdoor kitchen area, a Berkey water filter system. And why? Because everybody knows. Berkeys can't break. If if you set them up and they don't leak, they're working. Uh, and they you can clean the filters and damn near last forever. If you need new filters, you can get them. Uh, it, they're just awesome. And here's the thing. So you know if you want a water filtration system, the Berkey's probably the way to go, especially for drinking water. They look great. They work great. They're awesome. But why would you get them from anybody other than the Berkey guy? You can find the Berkey guy and all his great stuff at Directive21.com. I kind of rediscovered Rob when uh, I, I was looking for YouTube channels for the show to recommend for my weekly channel, and I found a dude named Pete Canaris uh, from, and his channel Green Dreams Florida. And uh, Pete's actually going to be on the show uh, this coming month as well. And uh, But when I looked at that video and I saw what Rob was doing, I was like, there's no way that I don't put this man on the survival podcast. I mean, you talk about lessons in learning how to survive, uh, providing 100% for your, yourself from the land, from foraging and growing your own food for a year. That's tough for anybody to do. He's really making it happen, and I'm, I'm really uh, grateful that he agreed to come be on the show with us today. And with that, hey, Rob, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Jack. Hey, I'm glad to have you here. Um, I kind of rediscovered you uh, through Pete's channel. Uh, I saw like a, a thing he did with you, and I'm like, oh, I remember this guy when he was like riding across the country on a bamboo bike and stuff. Uh, yeah, man. Like, so I, I've kind of followed you in and out for a while, but I, I'm always interested in like how people when we have people on a show for like whatever it is they're doing in their life now, like how they got there. So like, can you take us back? I don't know if you're like in in high school or college before you figured out that, like this is what you want to do with your life and how you end up becoming like an activist, crossing the country on a bike, living in tiny houses. How how do you go from, like, wherever you were kind of plugged into the world to this? Yeah, well, you know, I, I didn't think this is where I'd be today. If you go back to, say, when I was in high school or in my early 20s, you know, through college, um, at that time, I was really geared up to live the average American lifestyle. I really had a strong goal of being a millionaire by the time I was 30 years old. And I was, you know, really just focused on material possessions and the mainstream narrative 
now I wasn't perfectly in line with that. I was an outdoors person and passionate about fishing, nature, and and there was some elements of you know I, I recycled and conserved electricity, and so there was some elements and and I traveled and things like that. But ultimately, I was I was really bought into mainstream consumerism and that whole narrative. And um, what ultimately happened was in 2011, a couple of years after I graduated from university, I started to watch a lot of documentaries and read a lot of books and just woke up, woke up to the fact that my life wasn't what I thought it was, that a lot of it was just lies that I'd been told by corporations, governments, uh, mainstream media. And I realized I was a complete hypocrite living in a way that was destroying the earth that I loved. And I decided I had to change my life. So you've done a lot of really interesting things. Like I said, crossing the country on a bike. Uh, you did a tiny house thing uh, before this. Now you're in a tiny house again. What's different this time is um, you're in this tiny house you built for like 1500 bucks, And it is small. And I would say it's like, it's like half house and half tent in some ways. Living in, in Florida. And the big thing, though, is you are living 100% off food that you either grow or forage. And, and I, I said during the intro, but I'll say it again, I want people to understand what that means. So you do not mean, yeah, I'll grow all my vegetables and whatever, but I can go to the store and get oil or whatever. Like when you put salt on your food, you've literally made it from evaporating seawater. So it's 100%. That is a huge challenge. What made you lose your mind and decide you were going to do this for a year? Well, I mean, a part of it is just, is it possible? Is sure. it possible in the 21st century, in a Western society, in a globalized, industrialized food system, is it still possible for uh, one of us to choose to grow and forage 100% of their food and to remove themselves from the grocery stores, from the restaurants, from all the convenience foods? And, and to do that, I had to go into every detail because people really overlook, like you said, when I, when I say 100%, I mean it. People just assume, oh, well, of course, that, that doesn't include oil or salt or things like that. But to do this, to immerse in it, it, it's one, seeing if it's possible. Two, it's a deep immersion where I'm just learning. I cannot tell you. In the last uh, year and a half, the amount of knowledge I have about food today is just It's unbelievable what I know now that I didn't know just a year and a half ago. And then the other big element is I want to inspire people. I want people to wake up to our food system. I want to shock people. I want them to understand that our current food system is very broken in many ways. And I want to inspire people to make little changes. And that doesn't mean grow and forage all their food, but start growing some of their food. Start going to the local, you know, start supporting their local farmers. Start If their neighbor has surplus, exchange with their neighbor, you know, that's what it's really about. Yeah, can you, let's talk a little bit. I, I kind of had this toward the end, but you kind of bring it up there, so let's dive into that. What your real goal is with this. I mean, I don't think that you're like, you know, unless you do what I do, you're wrong or something. Or you don't expect, like, thousands of people to move into small backyard homes and start doing exactly what you're doing. I think what you're doing, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're taking an extreme example So that people can look at their own lives and say, like, dude, if this guy can do this, I can put in a, a couple four-by-four four beds and start growing some of my own food and make a little bit better of a choice in my life. Because I'm not actually being asked to do that much. 
Exactly. That's what it's really about. It's it's really about just showing people how far you can go, <clears throat> and then the hopes is to inspire people to take it a little further in their own lives. And th- here's the reality, you know, what I do is extreme. I uh, get that. I do that intentionally. I'm an extreme personality in many ways. But the only reason that I am, ex- or the main reason that I'm extreme is because I'm being compared to what is actually a very main, extreme mainstream society. And it's yep. simple, this one fa- fact and, fi- you know, this one statistic, the fact that the United States f- has 5% of the world's population but uses 25% of the world's resources, that's extreme. And I'm the counterbalance to that extreme and hope to wake people up to the fact that our lives are extreme, even though they seem normal, and hope to inspire people to go a little bit more in the direction of, of moderation, ultimately. Well, yeah, and it's one thing that we consume that much, but the other thing is how much we waste. Like, the yeah. waste is what's extreme. And then I know people, I don't spend a lot of time with them, but I know people who literally never even cook a meal for themselves. So, and then nobody bats an eye at that. Like, they eat out three meals a day or something, and everybody's like, oh, it's perfectly normal. So, no, it isn't that extreme. It's just extreme correlative to what people have come to expect as normal. And I I really feel a lot of the ways that people live today are not normal. Like, it is not – in the corporate world, for instance, you mentioned wanting to be a millionaire. One of the sayings I really love is in the corporate world, men begin the day by holding a blade to their own throat, and then they tie a noose around it. (laughs) <laughs> and, and that's normal, right? And then, oh, you're crazy. Look what you're doing. You're living the way humanity did for thousands and thousands of years before uh, this very short uh, segment of what we would call modern humanity has existed. So, yeah, I, I dig exactly what you're saying there. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's the bigger picture stuff. You know, we live in this world where things are created to be so polarized. It's black and white. It's it's this is right and that's wrong. And I don't believe any of that. I believe that everything is extremely complicated, that there's so much diversity that in one scenario where something is could be totally the wrong thing to do, in another scenario, it's totally the right thing to do. And so everybody lives in different climates and, you know, biomes. And so I'm not trying to design my life at all for other people to say, I'm going to live his life. I'm just living my life that works for me in hopes to inspire people to adapt what works for them. Very cool, man. So you mentioned climate there. That, that's actually funny because it's my next question. Tell us about your selection of a climate for this project. When I heard you were in central Florida, I'm like, that's one of the places I would consider. Some challenges with heat in the summer, but um, you have pretty much a year-round growing season. You don't have to worry about freezes. There's fish every. You got a ditch in Florida. There's a fish in it. Uh, coconuts grow, bananas grow. So that that would be a place I would highly consider. But there's trade-offs. Like I was watching one of your videos, and you were talking about how much you know fat calories you get from coconut. And you were like, well, if I was in the Northeast, I'd take a deer. And yep. you were lamenting, you know, your uh, lack of oil in a recent video I watched, and you still hadn't figured out how to pull off coconut oil. Well, if you took a deer, you could render tallow, and you'd have something to fry with. So. Everything's a trade-off. What made you kind of key in on the on the location you are? Was it a just an easy opportunity, or was there a lot of thought that went into it? Yeah, no, definitely a lot of thought. Um, I mean, on a personal front, I have a huge amount of respect for temperate climates. I grew up in Wisconsin on Lake Superior. My heart and soul is largely there, but the reality is, is that I just don't want to be in winters right now. Um, so that only leaves so much of the United States. 
Um, and I also don't want to be isolated on an island, Hawaii. So as far as, you know, the United States for warmer areas, that leaves Southern California, maybe parts of Texas, and then Florida. And so that's a big reason I ended up in Florida. And then, you know, the, I came through here and I saw a really, I'm in Orlando, which most people, when they think of Orlando, they would think of, you know, places like Disney. The mouse. Yeah, the big yeah, mouse. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's actually a group here called Orlando Permaculture, and it's one of the, ah. it's one of the nice, it's one of the largest, like, permaculture, local permaculture groups I came across. So I came through here and realized this would be a great place because when I decided I wasn't going to do this project, or when I decided I was going to do this project, I had grown very little food, done very minimal foraging overall, and um, I needed a community that I could learn from, and this was a great place. So I, I found a good community. It's a nice climate where you can grow year-round, so it just was it was a good good spot. Let's talk a little bit, I mean, because that's, that's a local support system, and that was probably huge with being relatively inexperienced as a gardener. But before we dig in the gardening, because I know that's a huge part of how you feed yourself now, how, what about foraging? Like, can you talk a little bit about what you're able to forage in your local climate? Yeah. Well, you mentioned coconuts, and that's a really big one. Just this weekend, I opened up 20 brown coconuts and then dehydrated them and turned it into flakes, which is – I did a 30 – I have 33,000 calories of coconut flakes sitting for me wow. to be eaten over the months to come. So that's a huge calorie source. Um the other really big one, last night I went out and harvested 180 pounds of wild yam. Um, now, that's uh, the genus and species is Dioscoria alata. And it's a yam that escaped cultivation, and one yam can get up to 150 pounds. Uh, so we're talking a, you know, a deer, or the weight of a deer. Good-sized deer, I <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah, big deer. And... Um, and so I, I usually find yesterday I got a 41 pounder, 25 pounds is average, and 180 pounds is the weight with some sand and stuff on there. Yeah. So as far as processing, well, just like a deer, I'm, 180 pounds of wild yam, I'm going to guess it's going to turn into 100 something pounds, um, maybe a 60% yield. Um, but I'm doing the math because I haven't found anyone who's really done that. So. That's a huge one. I mean, last night I harvested like two months worth of staple crops from the woods, and that's invasive, so it's actually doing a service to the to the forest by harvesting it. Um, lots of greens. I've harvested. I've foraged maybe thirty wild greens. Down here we have Yapon holly, which is a is North America's only caffeinated plant, and it's got about the same amount of caffeine as. Um, coffee or yerba mate so i i have that right from the wild here um a fishing another really big one that's my my really my only real meat source currently um so i go fishing a couple times a month and then bring fish home and freeze it so those just to name some off that would be like that would be a pretty good idea of my foraging currently do you have any uh, videos that show your fishing or anything? Because I haven't seen them. And I would, that was actually my next question is about how much fish you include in your diet. Because I grew up in Jacksonville, just a little bit north of mm. you. And if there's a ditch, there's a fish in it in Florida. I mean, there really is. And there's bullhead cats and, and, and bluegills are like a fish you can't really – I guess it could be done. But a guy with a line or even a cast net is not going to overfish those two species. You're also surrounded by ocean on three sides – 
do you ever get out? I guess you got to get out to the salt water to make salt. So yep. is, is it a significant portion or is it just a, a, a modest portion? Because I'd be, man, that would be, that's your, your easy go-to for calories and protein. Yeah, it's lower than I would like. I, I think it's safe to say that I'm eating a probably a 90% plant-based diet. And I do feel like I am actually low in um, some of the important, some of the things you'd get from meat. Mm. Um, I It's interesting because I've actually been, I said I haven't done much foraging before this, but I did start fishing when I was eight and I fished. I was addicted. It was my favorite thing to do. I, I mean, in high school, there were years where I fished 180 days of the year. So that's at least every other day or basically every other day. So I considered myself a really good fisherman. And I don't know what happened, but during this project, I just have not been able to catch that much fish. I'm really yeah. struggling. Um, so unfortunately, well, you know, I'm. It's also I, I have to acknowledge that I launched into this project, having never lived in Florida, having never grown or foraged food in Florida besides some fishing. So this was I learned all this. From a lot of it from scratch, and from the from the first day that I started, that I planted my first seed, to when I started the project, ten months. Okay. So imagine a new climate, new everything, um, new species, and all that, and they go from zero to a hundred percent in ten months. It just goes to show how little background I have in this region. How some things that if I was to stay in this spot in five years, this would be just exponentially easier because I'd have all that knowledge and I'd know the locations and everything, but I'm so much learning it as I go. So cool. That is a great transition to where I want to go next as we start talking about what you're growing. So like when I first started this show and it began to get successful, you started having people come that want to be sponsors and all. And one of the companies did like, you know, these seed banks and I was really skeptical and eventually just said, I can't really work with you guys Because the concept that you're going to have like this big giant bucket of seeds, and then if something goes wrong, you're just going to go out and throw them in the ground and eat. That 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 doesn't work that way. You know that better than anybody at this point. So you're kind of mentioning a timeline there. So I've always been interested in kind of how you ramped up to this. Because if you just like show up and put seeds in the ground today, tomorrow you're going to look at dirt. Mm -hmm. So how did you... I, did, when you showed up and moved in, I guess you didn't immediately start this project. You started the living and the prepping, and then you reached a point where you transitioned to the food part of it. Is that how it worked? Yeah, exactly. My goal was that basically. Well, the thing is that I'm a I'm a mover. I'm I have a lot of homesteading in me, but the reality is that I don't really stay put for long, and haven't for really since I was able to move. Um, And so that's the challenge. So I gave myself two years in central Florida with the idea that I'd get here, I'd start preparing right away. That gives me, and I would give myself six months and then I'd have a year of the project, which would guarantee a year and a half here, but more like two. Okay. Um, it ended up taking me 10 months just because I got involved with a bunch of other projects and it took longer. Um, but basically, So yeah, it took me 10 months to be able to start. And then I, I would say, interestingly enough, that I, like what you said about the whole seed bank thing, part of it is, yeah, I mean, it's not just instant, but at the same time, I was astounded how quickly I was able to get a huge amount of food growing. So I have no land here. 
I used people's front yards and the front yard that I, that I, that I started with was just a lawn, just grass growing. And I laid down cardboard and mulch and then brought in a bunch of compost to plant in. And in four months time, there was more food growing in that front front yard than my partner at the time and the two people that the, the hosts of where we were staying in a guest bedroom, the four of us couldn't eat all of that food. And that was just four months after having a front lawn. So, but that took a lot of work. So the hopeful thing is I'm astounded at how quickly we can start to grow a huge amount of our food and take the power back away from this, you know, these huge corporations, these mega corporations and start to grow our own. It's amazing. And then at the same time, not underestimate, not understating it is, it is a lot of work. I mean, growing your own food, you know, a lot of people fantasize about it. And I think a lot of people, once they realize that it's work, they don't actually really follow through. So it's kind of a balance both between amazing how much you can grow and how quickly. uh, And at the same time, I mean, I, I personally, for doing 100% of my food, I'm spending 40, 60, sometimes even probably 80 hours in a week on food. Hmm. That's a lot. That's more than a lot of jobs right there. So there's, there's trade-offs and everything. Um, I was kind of going to ask you that is like how long did it take before you really started harvesting? But I think you said about four months. Well, four months until we had more food than we could deal with. Okay. Um, but some foods are much faster. I mean – just as an example, if you want the quickest instant gratification, radishes can be ready in 30 days. Um, a lot of greens, like your salad greens and things like that, you could be eating quite a bit of that in 60 days. You could be having a really nice, diverse salad in, for sure, I would, I would say in two months or so. And yeah, th- three, four months, you know, I was seeing, you would be seeing other things like beets and carrots and, all sorts of things like that. Now I'm focusing largely on perennials, which often take a longer time to get established in the first place. But then once you do, for example, I got my Moringa tree. I planted that one tree and that's more greens than I can eat year around here in central Florida. And it needs almost no water, no nutrients. Uh, so the, the quick, you get the quickness from the annuals. And that was kind of my, um, tactic to get that quick production from annuals, but to have the long-term perennials. And those are what have really held me through this project. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's making more sense now as I've been following your stuff that like, you know, plants like pigeon pea and moringa, you know, you, you're kind of a year in and, but you're only six months in or seven months into your, your thing. So now that, that makes a lot more sense. And that's a good transition as well. Like, so let's talk about like, what are some of your real staple crops, the stuff that, you know, once you got up and established, you know you can depend on these either for nutrient or calories or what have you. Yeah, so as far as calories, the big ones would be um, yucca or cassava, and that's a true survival crop. Only for, I think it's zone 10 and below. I think that where I am is about as high up as they go. Um, I'm in a semi-tropical area, but I, so I can grow a lot of northern climate stuff. But I can also grow a lot of tropical stuff, so it's kind of a nice in-between. But that was, but anyway, so yucca or cassava. And then another big one is the sweet potatoes in a probably 10 foot by 15 foot area. So you're talking 150 square feet. I grew 400 pounds of sweet potato. And I've talked to a lot of people who have done similar yields. 
And the leaves are also edible <laughs> of the sweet potato. That is one of the highest, most productive crops on earth from what I've read. Um, so those would be my two biggest staple crops as far as calories. Um, pigeon peas that you mentioned, or gandules, they call it in lots of the Caribbean, uh, Puerto Rico. That's been a big staple for some homemade protein source. Um, greens are a huge staple. I probably grow 30 to 50 different greens. Um, Moringa is one of the most nutrient-dense plants on earth, so I eat, grow that and eat a lot of that. Chaya, katuk um, are two other you know, greens that I eat a lot of. Um, and then lots of perennial spinaches. There's Okinawa, Longevity, Suriname, Malabar, New Zealand. There's all these different perennial spinaches. Um, so those, those things make a, a big bulk. And then honey, I can't understate the number of calories that I do actually get from my bees. I have three hives. And this, in the last, since November of last year, so we're talking only seven or eight months, I've harvested um, 75 pounds plus 30 pounds plus 20 pounds, at least 125 pounds of honey. So that's been a big staple as far as growing. And then papayas are another staple. You can eat them green or orange, ripe or unripe. So those would be some of my, those would be some of my biggest staples, I would say. And uh, the other one I noticed that you seem to grow a lot of as an annual is uh, Seminole pumpkin. That seems like it's another oh, yeah. big, big thing for you as well. Yeah, I grew about 160 Seminole pumpkins last <laughs> summer. And the amazing thing about those is they're a heat-tolerant pumpkin. So I have two left, and they've been sitting in my tiny house, which you said is kind of like a tent, kind of like a tiny house. Um, I designed it to be like a shed, just to kind of fit into the suburban area so it's not that noticeable. And so it's not insulated. It doesn't have air conditioning. So if it's 95 degrees outside, it's about 95 degrees inside. I did build it well where it doesn't usually go hotter inside than outside. But the point is is that those pumpkins have been stored in that temperature. I still have two from last summer. So we're talking about a year, not in a root cellar or anything like that. And it's so those are an amazing pumpkin for people growing food in the in the semi tropics and I think even maybe the, the tropics. It is kind of amazing how some of the different squash species will store like that. It was years ago I had a uh, it was a, a butternut squash that I put in the windowsill of our house, and it was there for like ten months. And my wife's finally like, "What are you doing with it?" I'm like, "I'm waiting to see how long it can store." And I think it's about fourteen months in. She goes, "Either cook it or get rid of it." <laughs> like it was just bothering her that it was there that long. So yeah, I mean that's that's why the native peoples and they had different versions for different climates were so uh, used so much of uh, different squash species because even like summer squash like zucchini of course everybody picks them little when they're tender if you let a zucchini get big it'll store for months so i mean yeah. it's really cool we've been recently doing a lot more with edible gourds like we have awful squash bug problems here like you mm. plant squash the squash bugs are like watching you plant the squash uh but a, a lot of gourds that i always thought of as being um you know, just novelty things for making bowls or something out of. Turns out they're a good stand-in for that. It's amazing 
like you said, like I, I can't believe how much you must have learned in this time period. Like, do you plan like when you're done with this? Like, are you going to write a book on all of this stuff or something? Yeah, well, so I am going to write a book. It's called Food Freedom. Well, actually, that could change, but okay. that's what I'm currently calling it, and that's um, what I'm writing it right now. The thing is. It's not really going to be probably about the details of all of this. It's going to be more of the bigger picture um, because because this is one climate. I don't want to go into the details of what exactly I'm planting and things because then it's not really applicable to everybody. So it's going to be much more about the, the bigger picture experience, I would say. And just really it's more about the you know, trying to inspire people to start growing some food. But it's a ways off. Um, can't finish that until I'm done with this project, and then it'll take another nine months before that comes out or something. So, so what about soil when you uh, when you got started? Like, I, I grew up in Florida, like I said, very very sandy. Generally, needs some level of improvement. Were you starting out with like somebody's grass yard that you ended up having to mulch? Or, and I know you do a lot of composting now, but how did you start that process of of building fertility so that you could grow all this stuff? Yeah, so I did. I started on a sandy lawn. I mean, it was grass on top of sand, which anybody from Central Florida who's listening to this will, well, most people will be able to relate um, in Central Florida. I actually happened to look back at uh, on my Facebook page and I saw a live video I did where I just picked up the lawn and just held it in and it just all blew away and it was just pure sand. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I started with? So I practice a lot of permaculture principles. However, at the same time with this, you know, to do pure permaculture, it's going to take you a while to establish a fertile place. And so one of the things that I did is I brought in um, here, we have mushroom growing companies and their byproduct is this super rich mushroom compost. So it's chicken poop. I think straw is the medium and then a whole bunch of vitamins and minerals. And like most industrial farming, they get rid of their stuff while it's still highly productive, but it's just not productive enough. Like chickens, once they drop below a 90% egg rate, which means laying an egg you know, nine days out of 10, those chickens are gone. To us, 90% would be great, but to them, it's already too low. So with the mushroom uh, medi growing medium, it's the same way. They get rid of that stuff, but it's like that 90% good still. So I just got a um, 20 cubic yard dump truck dumped here, and that cost 225 bucks, and that was enough for multiple gardens. So we're talking like you know spending 50, 100 bucks to get the fertility just instantly ramped up. Um, so that I I like that, but at the same time. You're going to have nutrient runoff, you know, with the heavy rains here, having that sort of loose fertility, even with the mulch around it and stuff, you're going to have a lot of runoff going to the lakes. So it was great. It's not an ideal solution, but for this, it resulted in like, you know, pretty instant fertility in a place that was infertile. If you're doing things really right, which is focusing on the perennials and stuff that don't need high fertility then that wouldn't be necessary, but I was also going for the annuals. So 
That's kind of like I mentioned. No one's going to take your permaculture uh, membership card away for using <laughs> mushroom compost. You, you know, runoff is something that in your climate you have to really be careful with. But, like, taking something that was going to be waste and making it into fertility, that is, that's, that's permaculture to the core, honestly. Yeah, I agree. It wouldn't, it's not my ideal exact, but um, it's pretty hard to stick to your exact ideals. That's one of the things I've seen this year. The more you get deeper into things, you realize that it might be too hard to stick your... Once you actually have to practice your ideals, it's not always as easy to live out the ideals. Yeah. yeah I, I understand that, definitely. <laughs> I, I completely get that. So, like, one of the principles that we talk about is that we, 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 we're really big on preparedness here, you might imagine, with the name. And one of the reasons we like to get people into gardening and producing their own food is not only does it help fill up that need of food production, but then it makes you think about things like food storage so that you don't run out, so that you're not a drain on the system if there's a problem. And the beauty of gardening is you if you do it even halfway right, you will always produce more than you can consume in the time that you have to harvest and consume it, and you'll have to store it. So... I'm sure you've done much of that. I've seen some of your videos where you have, but can you talk about like what you store, how you store it, how you you know accounted for that? Because if you try to live every day as a you know kind of self-directed forager in your own backyard, you always have to do the work to get the food every day. Plus, you'll lose a lot of your yield. I saw you picking um, New Zealand spinach. I grow that too, and like you said, you pick it, you get more. So you literally have to pick it to get more. But then. You know, some of this food you've got to store. So what are you doing for storage? Yeah, so that is definitely one of the big challenges of Central Florida, and that's one way that I yearn for the north because you can really store a lot of food where it's colder much easier. Here, our winters are cooler, but our summers are long and hot. So it's a very tough place to store food. Um, I have a deep chest freezer. You know, well, one, you know, a caveat is, most people live in air-conditioned houses and have all the electricity, just they don't even think about it. Well, then it's really easy to store food. Now, I don't have an air-conditioned house or anything like that. You can't uh, build root cellars here because our groundwater level is too high and um, other reasons as well, but generally that doesn't work here. So storage is hard. So I have a deep chest freezer. And I actually was surprised when I did research on deep, deep chest freezers that they are one of the most uh, energy efficient ways to store food. It costs somewhere between three and five dollars a month to run my freezer, and I can store 200 pounds of food in there. So that's my easiest go-to. I do a lot of dehydration, and that is just with using an electric dehydrator, and then I store that in jars. And I've been amazed at actually. Given the humidity here, um, I'm I was surprised. I'm surprised so far at how well my dry goods have 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 done. I haven't lost any dry goods um, except a few that I didn't dehydrate enough. I've learned you got to fully dehydrate. Um, so dehydration has worked pretty well. I do I do fermenting, so honey wine. Um, I do a lot of like sauerkraut, and that's the difficult one. So I have a little underground storage, just these, I wouldn't call them a root cellar. It's basically I just dig a few feet down, make a little box, and then I put them down there. And 
that thermal temper that thermal mass keeps it cooler i don't know 10 maybe 20 degrees i'm I not was, sure i was actually going to ask you on that so you've never dropped the thermometer in there i was just i was i was curious i'm like sure it's cooler i wonder how much you know yeah i mean it's it's july 3rd now so we're well into the heat of summer and I've got sauerkrauts that are underground and have been for four months. And wow. my friend, my friend who runs a fermentation business, really knows her ferments, came over and tasted them and said these are still great. Awesome. Um, so it's 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 working to a degree. I mean, you don't need to be able to store your krauts for a year if you can extend your krauts for four months. That's you know, that's pretty meaningful. They're not hard to make. Just make some more, right? So, I mean, like, yeah, that's plenty. Yeah. Well, the problem is that you can't grow those things ah. in the summer here. So that's the downside. But, yeah, so overall storage has gone pretty well. And you're right. If I wasn't doing storage, this would just be – if I was doing hand-to-mouth, it would just be even more time-consuming and, and even more difficult. So storage is just – Storage is really absolutely key, and that's kind of one of the interesting things I've gotten from this is, I, you know, I consider my, I've always been kind of like zero waste, really into that movement, and um, and kind of interestingly, I never thought I'd be using plastic, you know, zipper top bags again, and then here I am using plastic bags, and but the thing is, when you're going to the grocery store, zero waste. You don't, you're not having to store lots of food because you can just go there once a week because they're doing all the storage. And mm. that's kind of the thing where I was saying, like, once you try to live something, it's a little different with the ideals. In some areas, I've gotten better. And then in some areas, I've had to take sort of steps backwards when it comes to those, those ideals. This has been kind of one of the interesting parts of this deep immersion in, in sustainability and growing and foraging all my food. You know, things like that, you can mitigate a great deal. Like if you use Ziploc bags, they're not going to destroy the world by themselves. And I think one of the biggest problems I have with those is that people use them once. Like yeah. if they don't break, rinse them out and use them again. My, you know, I grew up pretty poor. My grandmother, if, if food came in something, well, that meant food could go back in it again. And, you know, fish got frozen in um, milk, milk containers, things like that. Like if you got a... Uh, a container that held like uh, sour cream or something like that. Well, then leftover soup went in there and went in the freezer. Like I think there's there's ways to kind of coexist with the modern world without being 100% bought into the let's throw it all away. And you know we kind of need more people to step up with giving us the ability to take these things and recycle them. Um, that, yeah. That if a lot of the stuff that we gets thrown away and goes in the landfills. I don't even believe it's that people don't want to recycle. If there's not a way for them to do it, or there's not a way for them to do it without completely going off grid and living in a backyard or something, the average person's not going to. But I think if you give people, hey, just put your plastic in a different container and put it out in the street, and we'll come get it and do something with it, I think most people will do it. Not all, but I think most would. Mm. Yeah, definitely the easier it is, the more likely people are going to be to to do it so what have your biggest challenges been rob i mean this is a, a momentous thing to take on um what have been the things that we talked a lot about what's worked and how it's worked what are the things that like man this is way harder than i thought it was going to be well i definitely do find myself sometimes saying 
I gotta be doing something wrong. How am I still sitting in this kitchen processing food? Like, it can't be this time consuming. I just can't be doing it right. So, it, that's the main challenge is just, it's a year and there's almost just, there's just not really a let up because we eat three meals a day. For most of us, we're eating way more than three times a day. I eat all day. I mean, I don't know if you can hear. And I wouldn't normally like to do this, but I'm munching as we're doing this podcast. Sorry, man. No, because I just I'm. I, I'm going to confess, I felt guilty because I was finishing my sushi at the beginning. Oh, okay. But all I right. felt guilty as hell. You're out there like pulling stuff out of your yard, and my wife brings me sushi for lunch. So <laughs> I mean, it happens. <laughs> all right, cool. Yeah, I'm currently eating uh, yam, coke, uh, yam, carrot, yam and carrot like boiled in coconut milk with. Uh, different herbs and then moringa powder in there and uh yeah so I'm munching on that right now but basically just how time consuming it is 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 so challenging like i said in an average week it could be 40 to 60 hours some weeks it might be 80 hours and i mean today's wednesday i feel like since saturday morning i almost haven't stopped i hardly have had a chance to go on the internet and even barely check my emails and write a social media post. It's just since Saturday, I feel like it's been nonstop. Now, mm. at the same time, I've, there's, I take a lot of joy and fun in all this. I'm learning from all of it. Um, so part of me says that this is just a very time-consuming thing to, to go this far. It's one thing to grow half of your food. It's a whole other thing to do 80% or 90%. The further you go, I think in a way, the harder it is to eke out all those bits. And like, you can't understate how much the oil, the sugar and the flour, for example, just those things makes a difference between doing that on your own. And so there's part of me that I truly believe that it just takes a lot of work. But there's part of me who also says, I just definitely have not figured this out. And this if I kept, if I keep doing this, I would get it way better. And another note on that is some people comment like, well, just get chickens. You almost have to do nothing. But if I have chickens, I have to grow and forage 100% of their feed, including their vitamins and minerals as well. When I say 100%, that means no importing one food to make another food. Um, so that's really the biggest challenge is just that it's hard. And also that I'm learning um, another part is, I'll be honest, you know, the summer, the, the summer with no air conditioning mm. in, in this house, in this tiny house, it's, uh, it's brutal. I mean, I'm sitting outside right now talking with you and I'm, I'm sweating right now. I got sweat rolling down my head and that's just, I'm outside. I'm basically living outside in a temp, in a climate where most people, I mean, almost everybody lives inside in their AC. It's rare that I walk into a house that's not air conditioned. So that's another challenge that really beats beats me down. Um, the consistent weather. Um, my my tiny house is not my tiny house is good. It's great, but there's a difference between living in a tiny house and going grocery shopping, <laughs> and living in a tiny house and growing and foraging all your food where you have to store tons of food and process tons of food and you always have more these different projects going on. So I waste an incredible amount of time like taking stuff off the top of the freezer, which I use as one of my workspaces, 
Um, and having to constantly reorganize my shelves because I don't really have enough space to have like, you know, have harvested a ton of stuff and be able to put it inside. I've wasted dozens or more hours on just organizing, reorganizing, organizing because I have such a small space. So off the top of my head, those would be like four of the, you know, four big challenges that I, that I am definitely dealing with. I think maybe one of the reasons that the, it's so time consuming is that I don't know that humans were really meant to do what you're doing alone, right? So, like I said, that for thousands of years, humans lived this way, but we lived in small groups. We lived in small villages and things like that. And there was some level of division of labor. There was just some level of sharing labor. And, you know, if, if one person is really good at growing food and one person is really good at processing food, then the guy that's really the great fisherman or hunter can go out and bring game back, right? Yeah. So one of your challenges is, and I know other people come by and you have company and you've had support, but when it comes down to it, you're really in this to some degree alone. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you don't get up to, like, let's say that there was five of us doing this and two of us got sick and we yep. just didn't feel good. Well, the other three can kind of plot along until we get better. And if they get sick, then we'll take over like that. Like, it's, it, I run a one-man business. If I don't do it, it doesn't happen. And it is a unique challenge when there literally is no one to do it for you. And it's humans develop to do this, I believe, collectively. I completely agree, and it's funny that I didn't mention that one because it's obvious—it's the biggest one. But for some reason, I—I I keep forgetting. Like, I know that, but I never think of that because I just set out to do this kind of alone. But that's the reality. I agree. We're not—we're not designed to do this alone. Doing it as a community drastically increases workload. Also gives that—you know—that support. Spending. You know, sitting down and processing pigeon peas for six hours alone is a whole different story from doing it, you know, with the people you love, with your friends, with your family. So that that's number one. You're right. I mean, the fact that I'm doing this alone is is no doubt the biggest challenge of it. Cool, man. So, yeah, maybe we'll uh, – I could see sometime in the future maybe this being done in a small group might be an interesting thing to compare. Um How did you convince the landowner to let you do this? Like, you know, you're you're basically in somebody else's backyard here. Yeah. Well, there wasn't really convincing. Okay. What I did is I I put out a blog that said, um, like, looking for a home for my tiny home. And the idea was that I would, you know, do a work exchange. I was looking for someone who is dying to live more sustainably, wants to have, you know, wants to grow their own food, um, wants to compost, harvest rainwater all the basics and isn't doing it for one reason or, or another time money what it, whatever it may be but they have the space they have you know they have space that they would love to do that with but just haven't made it happen so i put that out and i probably had 30 people in orlando offer me the a space a oh, backyard wow. um most of them were out in the countryside Um, whereas I wanted to be in the city since I don't have a car and I only ride a bike. Um, I wanted, also wanted to be very low, close to the action of these local groups like Orlando Permaculture. Um, so I put that out there and got some, you know, lots of responses. The person I ended up going with it wasn't a person that saw that. It was just a person I met at an herbal conference. Um, and so, you know, she's something that she, she wanted. 
to have our whole front yard turned into a garden and everything. And I will say that is one of the challenges is being on other people's land, having to do things their way. Definitely is a challenge. I mean, it's got its pros and cons. Um, the pro is that I don't own any land, you know, not paying taxes to the government on land and things like that. Um, the challenge is that I have to do things their way. So that's got its pros and cons as well. But that's basically how it's worked. And since this project has started and, you know, since Pete Canaris did a video and a bunch of other people, I probably have 200 offers of places all around the country and the world of people who come said, do come mine next. do mine next. Yeah, like, no, exactly. I'm done, man. I'm going to do something exactly. else. <laughs> they say that. They say, come do mine next when uh, you've done that. Wow. I was going to ask you, like, how you gain more land. So you said you like two gardens, but you got one place. And I guess once you started getting, like, because basically you're doing this, like, spin cropping for yourself, I guess. Like, you have, like, another property that you can grow more food on. And I do, like, maybe do, like, a, I imagine the homeowner's getting some portion of the production. Yeah. yeah, I actually have six gardens that I use. Oh, wow. Or that I created and use. Um, now, most of, four of those are very low intensity. Um, lots of yucca and things like that that I don't really have to go even once a month a lot of the times. Um, two are very more time intensive and I should be there at least a couple times a week, um, depending on the time of year, maybe every day. And then one of them is sort of medium. Um, and the basic scenario is they can eat as much as they want. I honestly, I have food going to waste because there's just so much food and not always the time to harvest it. And even if I did harvest it, it would take a lot of time to find someone to eat it. Mm. Um, which that's just a reality that I've seen with most gardeners. It's a lot of work just to try to eat the huge bounty of food or store it in time and such. But yeah, the basic, it's a very loose arrangement. It's just, they have an unused space. They would love to have food there. I plant, they can basically eat as much as they want. Generally, there's a few things that I say, you know, this is something that I'm really dependent upon, so uh, ideally don't eat that. Okay. Um, but it's, a, yeah, very loose. And, and, you know, people ask about that. And if you put yourself out there in your community you, and you don't have land of your own, it's just a numbers game. Put an ad on Craigslist, you know, put um, notices on, like, local flyer boards. There's people that would love for you to garden um, their their unused space. You just have to put yourself out there and play the numbers game. And the space is there, and the people who want food growing for free in their space is there. Gotcha. Yeah, you mentioned not having a car. I, I totally get needing to be in town, so to say, with that scenario going on. And the systems of support are just there as well. Um, the group you talked about... I, I wish there was one here that was half as active as some of the ones I've seen. Uh, but does that maybe just like rewinding for a second back to toward the beginning, does that have an impact on your ability to acquire fish? Like I remember being a kid in Jacksonville. I was driving around on my bike everywhere catching fish when I was a kid. When you're a kid, you have all day to screw off. Like if you had a car, do you think maybe you could up your protein from that source? Yeah. And actually I'm glad we're revisiting this fish thing. So yes, the thing is, without a car, I have to find people who want to go foraging or fishing with me, yeah. which requires a lot more planning and going with other people's schedules and things like that. If I had a car, there's no doubt that I'd be able to just pop out to lakes and, and to the ocean when I need it. The ocean's an hour drive, and I would, I would, I'd probably be fishing more, 
And yeah, so that, that car element does make this definitely, that is another challenge. That's a challenge that I don't even so much think about since I haven't had a car. Cause, cause I'm telling you, dude, if I lived where you are, you'd be put a smokehouse in, right? Yeah. Because, <laughs> cause I take you to the beach and, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I think we could, uh, we could solve your fish problem, man. I, I, I was just in Florida for, uh, about 10 days now by Fort Myers. Mm. And I uh, love it down there. And yeah. we we ate food off the beach every day. Nice. Just every day, man. It, and, like, yeah, I, I'm a big uh, fish guy, period, eating. I have fish tanks in my house. I've got ponds in my backyard. Like, I, I think I'm somewhere in me, uh, Bill Mollison, co-founder of Permaculture, said he was talking about a, a China. And he said, if you give a Chinaman uh, a, a cup of tea, full of water, he'll put a fish in it. I think there's a little mm. bit of that in my genetics or something because I'm enamored with fish. They just are such an amazing thing. So that's an aside. But, yeah, when you said that, I was like, you know, that that would place a limit on that and other things as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm confident that the fish thing is just – I would learn – I mean, I'm only – I'm leaving Orlando when I'm done here. I'm not staying. Yeah. So, But I, I am confident to say that I would figure out this fish thing – whether it's the mullet run in the fall or getting into the mackerel um, or, or the bluefish when they're schooling or um, like actually one thing that's interesting when I was out with Pete Canaris, the first thing that I caught was a mud, uh, mudfish or a bowfin. Yeah. And I ended up catching four, four pounders in less than an hour and I smoked those and that made a solid amount of food and those were, they were really good smoked. They're, they're um, a fish that everybody thinks is a trash fish, and I've found that when everybody says something a trash is a trash fish, it probably isn't. I used to eat those as a kid all the time. People thought I was crazy. Yeah, they're great. I mean, you look at to the you look to the Asian cultures, and almost everything that's considered a trash fish here is a you know a wonderful delicacy. delicacy there. Yeah, 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 and they're they're huge fish too. I mean, for fresh water, they're they're awesome, and they're like dinosaurs basically, modern dinosaurs. Uh, but I never tried to smoke. I, that, I'll, if I if I acquire one anytime in the future, I'll give that a shot. Uh, you've what, what I really love about you is, in fact, with all of this on your plate and all of it that it takes to do what you're doing, you have still taken time to be what I consider philanthropic in the best way possible. Instead of just like giving. Uh, money in writing a check, and you, I mentioned during the intro that you weren't here for that you do give away the money that you earn from your stuff like this to charities. But the bigger charity, I think, is when you go in and you do something and you teach somebody how to do something. You've been doing that. You've been setting up things like teaching uh, single parents how to grow some of their own food and providing seeds and stuff like that. And to me, that is that is a huge impact. And it's it's you know for someone like myself that makes a podcast a day, like doing that is not that hard for you. You got to do all this stuff to produce your own food and you're going out and you're still engaging with the community. Talk about that and why it was important enough for you to make the time to get it done. Yeah. It's funny. I was just thinking about it last week. I was like, dang, I haven't given enough food away lately. <laughs> and, you know, cause originally my plan was to produce multiple times more food than I eat. So if I say need 2000 pounds of food in a year that I would give away 4000 pounds of food, let's say. And then, but then I thought about it. I was like, well, wait a sec. I planted 200 fruit trees and I've built six, seven, eight gardens for other people. And I was like, 
that's the food that and that's food that's going to be paying out for decades to come it's like the saying don't give a man a fish teach him how to fish and that's and and i and sometimes i there's that instant gratification of just dropping off a nice uh basket full of food but i don't want to do that i want people have the time if they knew how to do it, it I, if what i want to do is i want to take people who have the time and the desire but not just they just don't have it quite down and i want to teach them how to grow their own food so that i have just given them 40 years of food instead mm. so there's community community fruit trees and so far we've planted over 200 fruit trees throughout florida most of them are on public property where right along sidewalks a lot of them have signs right next to them where people can just pick that food um, we've planted pomegranates avocados star fruits uh, persimmon loquat mulberry um, maybe 10 more different varieties of fruit trees and so those are there for the picking um, started gardens for single moms and with that we built gardens, front yard gardens for five single parent families um, and taught them how to, you know, utilize that food um, to some degree. And then after that, that branched into gardens for the people. And this year, building 10 gardens for, for people that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford or, um, or build their own garden. And then there's the free seed project. And so far in last year and this year, we sent out 5,000 garden starter kits to people in all 50 states, and that's a pack of of of, of about 20 different um, seeds. You've got your greens like kale and collards, your your herbs like basil and and dill, your flowers to attract bees, um, things like tomatoes and such. So this is basically a garden in an envelope, and for someone to go out and buy these say 20 different varieties they're spending at least two dollars a pack that's forty dollars we're able to make these for more like a dollar a piece um so the value that these people are getting and then just being able to have seeds it's mostly goes to people who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford or access seeds so that's five thousand people across the country that have hopefully planted those of course not all will but they're all people who requested them and said that they would plant them so yeah, I mean, that's another reason that this is so time consuming is I don't necessarily separate me trying to grow and forage all my food and the fact that I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get literally tens of thousands of people growing their own food, whether it be via inspiration or the direct tools that I give them. Gotcha, man. I, I, I think that's so awesome because you, like you said, you travel and like a guy that you, like you that travels, you have so much to offer. If you do stuff like you do when you're there, when you leave, your impact continues, and like that's that is like a I call like you say a humble form of immortality. Like your actions continuing after you're gone. So I think that's really cool. Um, what are you gonna do when this is all over? You got another project planned already? Are you gonna dive into a cheeseburger? I mean, like <laughs> you know, I mean, like there's got to be a point like where you kind of have a celebration that this thing is has been accomplished. I. I think maybe it's been hard at times and you're considering, you know, well, am I going to get it done? I think at this point you're, you can't see the finish line, but maybe you can smell it. Like, I think you're going to, you know what you know now you're going to get, you're going to get to the end of this. What, what is that going to be like for you? Yeah, I, I really don't know. This project is so long and immersive that it's a little hard to imagine myself outside of it. Um, but I have thought about that. 
And my plan is definitely not to go out and I don't, I don't want to go back to the grocery store or restaurant by any means right away. What I'd like to do actually is if I don't end up leaving here immediately, I'd like to spend a couple weeks eating 100% locally grown and foraged, but where it's food that other people, you know, where food that other people grow or forage, I could buy from them, trade from them, and get that nice community experience. Mm -hmm. The first thing that I may eat, I'm thinking about maybe going to my, over to my friend Zach's farm and making ice cream from his goat milk. And I feel like that would be a great first treat. And I'll bring him a jar of honey. So we'll yeah. trade goat milk for honey. Um, and then I'm thinking I'll probably do a couple weeks speaking tour around Florida. And during that time, thinking still 100% Florida diet. And just, you know, I know there's like rice growing in South Florida. I'd love to experience that. And um, there's so many people growing foods that I didn't grow. So that's kind of my goal, um, my current thought. But it's possible that maybe I'll end up doing some speaking or who knows, media appearances where maybe I'll be heading to L.A. right after it's over. So I'm not making any solid plans, but that's kind of my that's kind of my ideal thoughts for for like the immediate after this is over. And how should people uh, connect with you? I think your YouTube channel is great. Like you have other ways people can connect with you and learn more about what you're doing. Yeah, YouTube's great. That's just youtube.com slash Rob Greenfield. And then um, I use Instagram a lot. And if you type in my name, I'll show up. But it's also Rob J. Greenfield is the handle. Facebook, just my name. You'll find me. And then I also am on Twitter, but I don't really use that. And then, of course, my website, just robgreenfield.org or .tv will get you in. I post on the blog tons of resources. I probably have 700 plus pages, uh, 700 plus blogs on there with all sorts of guides to be helpful and just, you know, inspiration and such. So, so much information on there. Awesome, man. Well, I've got links to all of your social media and your website and even to your book in the show notes today. So people uh, that maybe don't have time to write things down right now, get on by the website, check out today's episode if you're listening to us in the future, because podcasts kind of live on 2464. You throw that in the uh, search box on the site, survivalpodcast.com. It'll come up with links to everything that Rob's got going on. And subscribe to his stuff and stay in touch with him because we, we've seen enough out of Rob that we know that this isn't going to be like, you might not know what he's going to do next, but he's going to do something and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> so Rob, man, thank you so much for all the work you've done. Thank you for taking the time to document and share it because as someone that's done that too, I know that when you decide to do something, you think I'll just film it. It adds so much to the effort to document things and it, it you have to care about it to do it. So Uh, let me give you a thank you on behalf of my audience for doing that as well. And thank you for taking time out of your day and stopping your uh, your, your fermenting and, 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 and dehydrating <laughs> for a, an hour and spending time with us, man. Thank you very much. And if you ever have anything going on and you want to come back and, and talk to this audience, you let me know and we'll make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you having me on. Really appreciate you being on your almost 2,500th episode. That's yep. crazy. So keep that up. And it sounds like we'll definitely be doing another podcast in the future. Who knows when? But also would love to hang out in person one day and go fishing. That would be great. I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to go fishing with you, man. I was, gonna, I, was, I, was, I was scheming to get you here for my fall workshop. 
but it's probably going to be like right toward the end of your your project. So it's, it's I can't remember where you are, North I'm Carolina. In, I'm in Texas. I'm in Texas. Uh, North, North okay. Central Texas. Uh, Fort Worth is like the 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 closest city. I live in like this this utopian little leave me aloneville. I call it like. I'm in an unincorporated part of the, the county, so I have a Fort Worth address, but it's not really any city. So there's, like, no building codes. No one tells you what to do. There's, like, little townships all around us that look at us and think they're going to annex us, and we're like, don't you even try it. And so I have, mm. like, total freedom, but I can be in downtown in, like, 15 minutes, and it's it's awesome. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's the urban, urban rural fringe, man. That's going to be something to look at in your, uh, your yeah. future projects is identifying that and doing I something like similar with uh, – I've always wanted to do stuff with the group, you know, and uh, that has its own challenges, though. Cause yeah, got to get along. I think the way Paul Wheat described it, it was like when he started putting his community together, his first presentation he did at Permaculture Voices was something like how to live with 30 people without having a knife fight or something like that. Yeah. That's what he called it. So anyway, man, thank, thanks for, for, uh, thanks for uh, being on. And like I said, we'll try, maybe we'll try to figure out how to get you out here maybe next year or maybe in the spring. Yeah, sounds great, my friend. Excited. Uh, all right, man, take care. Uh, you too. Well, great interview, and talk about a dude making a difference. If his if his if what he's doing doesn't inspire you to get out and do more, uh, check your pulse, man. Something's wrong with you. Anyway, uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Remember, a couple ways you can support the show and the work that I do here, so I can keep bringing you great information like we brought you today. Uh, first and, and the easiest one, and 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 the most helpful, honestly, is to become a member of the site. Uh, you can do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. You'll get some content you can't get anywhere else. You get every episode of the show that's ever been produced uh, in convenient zip files. So that's over 2,500 episodes, uh, well, 2,400 episodes at this point uh, that you get access to with, uh, with easy downloads so you can have the full library. And the bigger thing is you get discounts that will cover your membership. So check it out. Again, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members. Uh, next up, the other way you can help us, and this is like a painless way, and that's just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You know, over the next week or two, you're probably going to buy something online. If you do and you go to tspaz.com first and you uh, uh, use our links there, no matter what you'll buy, you'll help support us in the work that we do. You'll also see all the products that I recommend uh, available to you uh, with reviews. And remember, if it's there, I own it, I bought it, I spent my money on it, and I would do it again or I wouldn't recommend it. Today's product I brought to you before, and the reason I brought it back today is I just reordered it. I mean, that's what I mean by if I want to spend my money again, I wouldn't do it. It's it's stevia, and I mean, lots of people know about stevia. It's a it's a sweetener that comes from a plant. It's 100% natural. It's really really sweet, so you only need to use a little bit of it. Um, and but the company I found with the best product and the price to value ratio and all that good stuff where it always shows up at your house in good shape and it's not smashed in the bottom of the box or something like that, is a company called Sweet Leaf. Sweet Leaf Sweet Drops. It is the best stevia that I've found, um, and I give away some really good good recipes with it today, including a strawberry uh, a strawberry limeade that is awesome. And if you read the review on this, I'll, I'll give you a caloric breakdown in it that shows you how much the average American can take out of their diet in calories and carbohydrates and sugar on a weekly basis. And for a lot of people, it's a day or two of extra eating. Rob's, you know, the guy we just had on Rob is, is doing 100% from his backyard. If you're getting enough out of Coke cans and self-sweetened teas and coffees and stuff, you can actually be adding a day or more of calories to your diet. Uh, so you can slim the waistline without giving anything up. This stuff is awesome. There are some things that I don't think it does a really good job in. 
I don't like it in coffee. I love it in tea. But you can decide for yourself. Again, good solid uh, value uh, to price ratio with the Sweet Leaf Sweet Drops. Uh, Four-ounce bottle lasts a long time. Between coffee and tea, both hot and cold and things like that, I go through 8 to 12 cups, glasses, etc. a day of things. I use stevia in everything. Uh, and I'll tell you that a, a four-ounce bottle lasts me over three months. So at 17 bucks a bottle, it might kind of seem expensive. It's not. What's expensive is destroying your body with sugar. That's expensive. With that, we've wrapped things up. It's July the 3rd today. Tomorrow is the 4th of July, a celebration of the independence of our nation. The song that we have today is by Johnny Cash. It's called Ragged Old Flag, and it's one of those spoken songs. It's, you know, rap before rap was a thing and when music was still good. Uh, this was written in the 70s, and it was actually released not long after uh, the Watergate uh, affair with Nixon. And you'll hear in this, despite the praise of the ideals the flag represents, no love for government itself. That's why I thought it was a good one today when... John Adam put it in the playlist and picked it out for us. Um, I'll tell you, a lot of a lot of people, I think, misunderstand what the flag's all about. Of course, and, and you know why? Why did it have to be right before the 4th of July? Colin Kaepernick's back in the news, and uh, he's upset because they put the Bessie Ross flag on the back of the Nike shoe, and Nike caved in what he said and took it away or whatever. I don't care about that. And i got to tell you, my view of the flag is if you think we should prevent people, as long as it's their flag that they bought from burning it or walking on it or whatever, then you don't even understand what that flag represents. It represents freedom, and if we don't have freedom to do as we choose with our property, then what freedom do we have? You can actually believe in the freedom that someone else has to take a material object and destroy it however they see fit and not agree with their choice to do it. You can actually do that. And you can actually believe in the ideals of America, even if America doesn't always live up to those ideals. I, I, I think I am a, a conundrum in that I am what you would call a patriotic anarchist. I do not have any loyalty whatsoever to the state, but to the ideals that freedom is the most important and most precious thing that we can have as humans. That ideal. Again, whether the nation lives up to it or not, many times it doesn't. And sometimes it does. Those ideals are what I see when I see our flag. I don't see a monument to the state. And that's why I don't elevate it to some holy relic status that if somebody has a copy of my flag and does something with it, when they bought it from some thrift store, and it was made in China, sewn together with child labor. I don't get bent out of sorts about it. It's their property. Because the flag is a symbol of ideals. It is not the flag that is important. It is the ideals they represent. And those ideals, the most important among them, is individual liberty. So I'm not going to be here tomorrow because I will be celebrating our independence from England. That's what the 4th is. It also worked out to where you know, the 4th of July came on a Thursday. It just makes sense to take Friday off. I'm taking Friday off too. You guys are going to get a rewind. Do you know what I'm celebrating on July 5th this year? My personal independence from the system that allows me to make that decision and that choice with no real consequence. 
I invite you to do the same. Build the life you want and create as much personal freedom and personal liberty for you and your family as you can. You can say what you want about the shortcomings of this nation, but there is still no better place in the world to do just that. So enjoy Independence Day and work so that every day in your life can be an Independence Day where you celebrate your own freedom and your own liberty. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I walked through a county courthouse square on a park bench. An old man was sitting there. I said, your old courthouse is kind of run down. He said, no, it'll do for our little town. I said, your old flagpole has leaned a little bit, and that's a ragged old flag you got hanging on it. He said, have a seat. And I sat down. Is this the first time you've been to our little town? I said, I think it is. He said, I don't like to brag, but we're kind of proud of that ragged old flag. You see, we got a little hole in that flag there when Washington took it across the Delaware. And it got powder burned the night that Francis Scott Key said, watching it right and say, can you see? And it got a bad rip in New Orleans with Packingham and Jackson tugging at its seams. And it almost fell at the Alamo beside the Texas flag, but she waved on, though. She got cut with a sword at Chancellorsville, and she got cut again at Shiloh Hill. There was Robert E. Lee, Beauregard, and Bragg, and the south wind blew hard on that ragged old flag. On Flanders Field in World War I, she got a big hole from a Bertha gun. She turned blood red in World War II. She hung limp and low a time or two. She was in Korea, Vietnam. She went where she was sent by her Uncle Sam. She waved from our ships upon the briny foam, and now they've about quit waving back here at home. In her own good land here, she's been abused. She's been burned, dishonored, denied and refused and the government for which she stands is scandalized throughout the land and she's getting threadbare and she's wearing thin but she's in good shape for the shape she's in cause she's been through the fire before and I believe she can take a whole lot more so we raise her up every morning we take her down every night we don't let her touch the ground and we fold her up right On second thought, I do like to brag, cause I'm mighty proud of that ragged old flag. Oh.